Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 203 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And our episode today is an interview of David Greenberg from LRN on uh, LRN's recent report on corporate boards and compliance program engagement. Hello, everyone. Hope you're doing well. I know we're going through the uh, Delta variant um, and uh, hope you're staying safe and healthy and your family's doing okay as well. Uh, I'm really uh, pleased to have David Greenberg here, and uh, the interview that we're about to jump into is really interesting. Uh, David has a unique perspective, and I think a very valuable one as a former chief compliance officer and a board uh, member uh, now, and can really give some context to this uh, recent LRN report, which I think is really uh, valuable, and uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to review it. And listen to David. He's a really a great uh, person to listen to about compliance. Uh, he gets it, and he has some really interesting uh, observations. So before we get started, though, uh, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Clause Match. Are you looking for a policy and compliance management platform to help you automate tasks, organize data and documents, and collaborate across your compliance and risk teams? ClauseMatch is an award-winning regulatory technology company that provides policy management and regulatory change management solutions for financial institutions and other regulated companies. ClauseMatch's AI-powered smart document collaboration platform enables cross-functional teams to interact with, review and approve centralized policy documents in real time, with the precise audit trail mapping them to regulatory obligations on a granular level. Clause Match applies a deep understanding of the regulatory lifecycle and machine learning to standardize and automate processes and workflows across teams, reducing costs, speeding up implementation, and demonstrating compliance to regulators. To learn how to transform your policy and compliance management, visit clausematch.com or email evolve at clausematch.com. Well, I'm Glad to have David Greenberg here from uh, LRN. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining, uh, going to talk to me here on the podcast and visit with me about the LRN's recent report. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Great to be here. And just for a little bit of background on David, he uh, he didn't want me to do too long a bio, but it's a pretty impressive bio. But David right now is a special advisor to LRN Corporation. Uh, he sits on a corporate board for International Seaways, which is uh, traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, he is the chair of the governance committee there and the, uh, is a member of the audit committee there. Uh, so it's a, a real pleasure to have you join us today, uh, David. I really always admired uh, LRN's work as sort of an important leader in the business and compliance community. And I always... Uh, look forward to your program uh, effectiveness uh, report. And this year, what was interesting to me is you have three parts to it. And this report about board engagement is just the second report. But if you can just give us a little background on how it turned into three reports, which I think are fantastic, and sort of the background of this current report on uh, board engagement. Yeah, so um, the last year's obviously been a very different year. And 
We wanted to explore whether the pandemic was a game changer in terms of ethics and compliance. So we developed some new questions to focus on its impact. And the short answer is that the pandemic really tested company values um, deeply. And values-based cultures emerged even stronger while rules-based cultures really suffered. And we thought that whole piece was worthy of its own separate report. We also had a sense that board governance was tested by the pandemic as never before. So we devoted a second part of the report to board leadership and the impact, its impact on ethics and compliance, particularly in this COVID environment. And then the third report, which will come later this year, will be our traditional focus on what separates more effective from less effective ethics and compliance programs. So that's kind of the, the story of the three parts. The three parts, yeah. I, uh, I mean, look, I, I was really excited to see sort of a focus on the boards, corporate boards, boards of directors. Uh, I sort of have been writing a lot in sort of advocating for more engaged boards. Uh, there's been sort of some changes, not cha I wouldn't call them transformative, but you know, in terms of holding boards accountable for compliance failures under the Caremark litigation and standard. And what I thought was so interesting about your guys' approach is it sort of, to me, demonstrated, it sort of proved the point that I've always believed, David, which is the boards can do so much here and has so much influence and are just critical. And um, so I, I feel like, it, you know, the study that you all put together really emphasized, again, the important, and we'll get into the findings of the study, but just in general, I thought it really emphasized the importance of the role that the board plays with compliance. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, I see it from both sides of the table, right? I was a chief ethics and compliance officer for years reporting to a board, and now I'm chair of a board committee that oversees ethics and compliance. And, you know, I feel like if the board does not do the right thing in terms of the ultimate tone at the top and following through on that, the ethics and compliance program has at least one hand tied behind its back. And so um, you know, I think it's a decide I think boards can have a decisive impact because what boards do um, echoes throughout uh, a company. Yeah, I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And, you know, usually we've seen, you know, we read about situations where it's a failure of some sort and it results, you know, in some major enforcement action or whatnot. And we don't hear about sort of the, and for obvious reasons, the successes, you know, where the board is engaged, where the board does sort of push compliance and know how to partner and, uh, and how to advance the compliance and culture mes message. Um, so let's go to the, the report itself. Um, 
I mean, can you give us sort of, you know, a you know, just a high level overview of what was involved, you know, what where you got the information from, how you collected board engagement? Sure. And then so, some of your key key and then we'll go to some of your key findings. Yeah, so the the mechanics are are these. Um we surveyed 630 ethics, compliance, and legal executives in companies around the world with at least a thousand employees. And the research focused on three key areas. First, what we call championship. In other words, do boards actively support and effectively oversee ethics and compliance programs? Second, open communications. Do boards enable direct two-way communication with the ethics and compliance team? And third, accountability. Do boards play an active role in holding senior executives and high performers accountable for any misconduct? So that's kind of the uh, essence of how we got the data and the key areas of inquiry. Right. And what was to you, I mean, when you look at the report, what are some of the key findings? And and also, I'd sort of be interested in knowing from your perspective, you know, on as both a chief compliance officer and a board member, you know, what was your what was your reaction personally, you know, from your experience and vantage point to some of the you know results you got? So I think you know I think there's 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 good news. In the study, and there's other news. Um, about 80% of the ethics, compliance, and legal executives surveyed said that the boards effectively supported ethics and compliance programs during the pandemic. 77% um, agreed that ethics and compliance has the ability to raise issues directly to the board, and 60% reported that the board took an active role in ensuring that misconduct by senior execs and star performers was actively addressed. So, I mean, um, you know, you can look at even that baseline data from a couple different points of view. Um, you have 80% agreeing with the proposition that their board effectively supported ethics and compliance. It means 20% um, didn't. And that that that's a big number, right? If you take that across the corporate right. world, uh, and then you go down to the lower scoring number, 60% reported that the board took an active role in ensuring that misconduct was punished. So that means, uh, you know, four in ten believe that their board did not take an active role in that. And again, that's a very big number. So, you know, I think one of the things that surprised me, though, was that 80% figure for board support of ethics and compliance strikes me as high, um, particularly if the answer was meant to uncover, you know, active strategic support. Because based on my experience as a director and my discussions with chief compliance officers over the years, um, 
I just, I doubt that number. We, LRN did a study a couple of years ago based on off the record interviews with the chief compliance officers of 25 global companies. And mm -hmm. the core finding there was that uh, I'd say two thirds of the chief compliance officers felt that their boards didn't fundamentally understand ethics and compliance strategies, didn't focus on the right outcomes and measures, didn't uh, create a sense of priority and urgency um, that in the company that ethics and compliance was, uh, you know, essential. Um, and I also know from discussions with dozens of of fellow directors that while boards care a lot about this stuff, they're just at the beginning of understanding how best to oversee it. So, you know, I think I think what we're seeing in the data is that boards' hearts are generally in the right place, and I think that's right. But finding the time, expertise, priority, and sort of right strategy is still a challenge. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with your comments and observations, David, because, you know, even I, myself, and it's anecdotal, I don't have a study, but it's rare to find a board that's engaged in really understanding what's going on. I, I try to tell chief compliance officers, if you get time in front of the board, and you're going to conduct, you know, quote unquote training. I think the first thing is to, under that guise, is to talk about how do you conduct uh, oversight and monitor and understand what compliance is trying to do. Now, um, and you also mentioned another term that I think is interesting because there are a lot of people who have been advocating for having somebody with compliance expertise on the board. Obviously, International Seaways has done that with you, but you know you're not the usual person who would be sitting on a board, from my perspective, in terms of with your compliance background. Um, yeah, I guess the yeah. um, Michael. The good news there is that um, I'm not alone. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've searched and we've uncovered. There's about 10 sitting public company board directors. Oh, that's good. I didn't know that. Are, are or were um, chief ethics and compliance officers. So it, it uh, I wouldn't say it's a groundswell, but it's more than an accident. And I think it will increase through, yeah. as you're saying, as people learn, the board members learn more, uh, I think it's going to increase. Um, I also just have a fundamental issue with the audit committee supervising a, a compliance program because I know that it means that the uh, compliance program will play secondary to all the internal audit and financial reporting issues and the members of that audit committee are more interested in the finance issues and usually compliance comes at the end of the audit committee meeting when you know right before everybody wants to go have drinks and yeah, well, uh, you know, assuming they're all together these days, you know? Yeah, um, I would say, A, that's correct. Um, audit committee 
agendas are more jammed than they've ever been. Right. They are jammed with things that are um, mandatory. Uh, uh, not everything that is of utmost importance is mandatory, but there are some things that are mandatory and they take up enormous amounts of time. And right. I would say eight out of 10 chief compliance officers who um, are overseen by audit committees experience, you know, having their time cut short, um, right. being We've 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 read your stuff in the pre-read. We don't have time to talk about it. it it's not pretty. Um, there is a, a movement to you know put jurisdiction over ethics compliance culture in governance committees, in public responsibility committees. There there are a right. few there are a few companies that have compliance committees of the board. Um, which which I so, like I like seeing that too. I like it. I think, you know, the, what we do at International Seaways is, as chairman of governance, I have primary responsibility for ethics and compliance, but I sit on the audit committee, and the chairman of the audit committee sits on my committee, so we don't lose anything kind of in the middle, and, you know, she can she can help focus on any compliance issues that are really, you know, financial and have to have the attention of the audit committee, and I can do the general supervision. But I also want to go back to a point you made because you're only the second person in the world I've heard make it, and I think it's really important. And that is when regulators say that everyone needs to be trained in ethics and compliance they mean you need to be trained to do whatever the heck your job is. And mm -hmm. directors' jobs are to oversee ethics and compliance. And so to train them like you train employees strikes me as just flat wrong. And right, I agree. What passes for board training in this arena is generally not really what which is we all need to be trained for purpose. Uh, and if right. our purpose is to oversee, we need to be trained in oversight. I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, um, it, and, and it's interesting, even the findings that you mentioned from your uh, study three years ago, those resonate with me because I experienced that all the time in, in talking to chief compliance officers. I mean, you know, somebody called me once and said, um, uh, I'm getting 10 minutes in front of the board. Do you think that's enough time? I'm like, no, that's crazy. Okay. I mean, that already, you know, the access to the board and, and the, frankly, your study and the survey result where people, three quarters, over three quarters of the people who responded said that they do have adequate you know, access to raise issues or concerns directly to the board. I think that's terrific um, because to me, you know, it's all about uh, making, I always say that chief compliance officers should be treated the same as internal auditors are treated by the audit committee yeah. and the audit, and, you know, they're the golden child and compliance is, you know, treated like the stepchild. But I think, 
I think it's getting better. I think we're, you know, there's more and more attention being, you know, given obviously compliance is the fastest rising profession there is uh, over the last, you know, 10 years after Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, redid the whole audit industry. But uh, in it, to me, we're not done yet, David, in the sense of, I think that's why I like this survey. That's why I like what you guys are talking about because you're really talking about the the important issues. And to me, the board and the relationship with the chief compliance officer has to be, you know, really elevated. And I've seen it work well. You know, I have to be honest with you. I've seen it work well in some cases, but most cases I don't see it working well. It's more like a check the box type of type of thing. Um, the other thing about sorry, the, um, yeah, go ahead. The, the data that you know a lot of people have direct a lot of chief compliance officers have direct access to the board um, is good um, I think it it hides some dynamics um, in other words I think what the survey is saying is that when something's really wrong the chief compliance officer knows he or she can go to the board that's right. different than having a real strategic relationship with the board right which, which is um you know i'd say the next the next big the but next I, big but i've um, seen that david where like you know the head of the audit committee and the chief compliance officer will pick up the phone and call each other with questions they'll yep. meet once a month you know for breakfast or lunch and you know what's going on from your perspective here let me tell you so that it's a true working relationship. And I've seen that in some companies. And to me, I tell chief compliance officers who have that type of relationship, they're lucky and take it, you know, use it to the maximum extent. Reach out as a person and always try to engage the board, you know, and say, let's get together for coffee. Let's have lunch. Let me, you know, try to have the ability to call each other and help the audit committee chair, you know, or help the the governance committee chair, you know, to make sure they have the information they need. Um, yeah, and we need to get to the point that uh, chief ethics and compliance officers have the same kind of uh, out of board meeting relationship that key board members have with other key executives. Exactly, exactly. Like the CFO gets a call or the internal auditor gets a call from the audit committee, those types of things. They're regularly in communications with each other. So let me go back to, let's go back to this study for a second. And there was, and not to be negative, because those are very, I think, actually, I was surprised at how positive the results were. But I, I you know, look, I take it at face value. Uh, but there was this, in, there was this finding that I thought was really interesting. And I, I wanted to know your uh, thoughts on it where you know north america uh came out on the low end in comparison to south america europe and asia pacific on board or boards taking an active role in ensuring that misconduct by senior executives or key performers is effectively addressed and can you explain that to us and and what from your perspective the implications are 
I don't know. I, I think maybe this is an issue of expectations being higher in North America. That yeah. really the only way that was the only way I could make sense of it. Um, uh, with the possible exception that in Latin America, there've been a swath of scandals that resulted in wholesale change of leadership, like a whole leadership team was wiped out. And so maybe um, respondents from that part of the world were sort of over-indexing on, on some of those recent examples. Um, but I, I would say it's more likely one of two things, either expectations being higher in North America or the structure of board relationships uh, being such that in other parts of the world, it they don't feel that it's appropriate to get involved in those personnel decisions other than at the CEO level. But, you know, there are, there is a, there, there's some strong thought in the board member community that um, the only personnel decision that the board really ought to be in charge of is hiring and firing the CEO. Um, that doesn't I, mean I can see that. I can see that. In other words, in other words, if uh, there's misconduct in a in an executive below the CEO, it's the CEO's call, in a sense, whether yeah. to let's say you had a CFO engaged in misconduct or something. But it's the CEO's call. I could, I, I actually could see the rationale for that. But what it, I mean, what do you think of that? It's you know, as a director. Um, one of the qualities that I think needs to be present in directors is humility because yeah. management yeah. on this stuff 24 seven. And, you know, there's an imbalance of information, often an imbalance of expertise on the management side. Um, but on the other hand, I think that one thing boards can insist on is you know one system of justice if you will and and yeah. not 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 you know favoritism towards senior executives or star performers so i think you, you, i think boards can hold ceos accountable to apply company values and standards um fairly across the board and yeah. you know um, maybe that all that means is that that uh, boards you know need to ask pretty deep questions when it looks like that hasn't happened, and at least ask a CEO to revisit uh, his or her thinking on whether someone needs to go. Yeah, I the, to me the hardest issues I've seen. Uh, is, you know, where you have a situation where under the CEO's watch, there's, you know, significant misconduct or whatever. And, you know, it's not clear that the CEO knew, but usually the question that comes up then is, well, they're damned if they knew and they're damned if they didn't know because they should have known. Yeah. Um, and, and I would think those get into pretty hard issues in just deciding how to handle 
you know, the CEO type issues um, for the board, at least. Definitely. And, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think uh, you know, it's sort of a negligence standard, not 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 strict liability. Right. But, but exactly. There's a point at which um, the CEO needs to know. And and yeah. by the way, in those instances where the CEO didn't know, his right. reaction after that could be positive of whether it happens again. Right. Right. Now the other but but you know, when you say that maybe North America like we have high expectations for holding people accountable, I mean you don't think there's really a distinct pattern of US board members sort of you know, looking the other way when there's misconduct at the at the senior executive level. There's too much liability these days and there's too much controversy around those types of situations. But um, it's just weird to me because I would have thought North American boards would have been really up there in terms of being, you know, vigilant in this area. The other thing, Michael, is I, I haven't I haven't penetrated the data, you know, yeah, we had a smaller sample, and so um, you can have variations because of that. A smaller sample overseas. Yeah, yeah. Um, one one other, th uh, and I wanted to actually. This goes back to your other study, and one of the things that I think LRN uh, sort of preaches, which is or does great work in. But you were mentioning the uh, the test before of corporate cultures, and I, um, I the one thing that LRN has always you know surveyed on, studied on, and frankly provided the best data that's out there, if not the only data, is on the you know importance of ethics and you know culture, uh, an ethical culture, and I always say, look, it's your most important corporate control. Uh, you know, it's the best, you can have all the fancy rules in the world that you want and beautiful internal controls in a binder. But if you have a, a culture of ethics and compliance, you're in much better shape. And I thought it was interesting that you pointed out the first study that LRN put out about how co the culture-based companies appear to do to, you know, get through COVID in, a, in better shape with compliance than uh, the rules-based companies. Can you just uh, explain that a little bit, David? Because it, it really it intrigues me and it's sort of consistent with a lot of the work that LRN has been doing. Yeah, no, look, it wasn't surprising because every time we do this program effectiveness report, uh, the results are that companies whose programs and whose DNA is based on a core set of important values just outperform um, across the board. Not only do they outperform across the board in ethics and compliance, but the studies that LRN has done on the relationship between different um, types of cultures and business outcomes shows mm -hmm. that the the more values-based, purpose-driven, collaborative cultures outperform other kinds of cultures 
command and control kinds of cultures across the board. Uh, you know, business performance, innovation, loyalty, customer satisfaction, um, you know, reduced levels of misconduct, more speaking up. It's, it's really remarkable. And I think that, that the reason COVID tested it is that um, we were in unprecedented waters. And how do you navigate unprecedented waters? There's no rule book. But the, there is, if you're driven by a set of core values, it's a lot easier to figure out what to do. And I also think that as we're moving towards more and more remote work, that means the boss isn't standing over you watching. So right. what's going to matter is uh, what gets you up in the morning to want to do your work? You know, are you driven by a company purpose? Do you share a set of values that kind of propel you forward as opposed to, you know, a metaphorical boss standing over you with a whip? Right. Well, it, and it gets back to, you know, what's the what's your mission? Do you believe in the company's mission? And, you know, we, we know all the great results that come about from a positive culture like that. Yep. Uh, that you've described, and uh, it, it that that is sort of turned me into you know you know ethics and compliance officers are the people who should be you know managing the culture, monitoring the culture, making sure you know if we have a problem in one country, let's address it. Uh, you know, if there's been higher rates of misconduct in one particular area, let's find out why and let's, uh, you know, look at our culture there. And um, and I think people are getting it. Uh, and they, you know, and I, when I hear leaders who say, you know, say, well, our culture is we do the right thing. I know that's that's a losing proposition because that's not a culture. That's not what we're talking about. Um, so what I think you guys have done is sort of provided a definition, but also provided sort of the rationale and the data behind it. That's what I just uh, love about the work that you guys have been doing. One of the things that I, that I hope the ethics and compliance community can hear and realize is this. When you talk to groups of board members about these issues, um, the technical aspects of corporate compliance put them to sleep. Right. But they are vitally interested and understand the power of corporate culture. And so if yeah. ethics and compliance people are talking to them about what's driving the culture in a good way or a bad way and what to do about that, uh, they've got a very attentive audience. If they're standing up there, reporting on activities, um, they're putting everyone to sleep. Right. I completely agree. I saw a survey uh, where it was like 90% of CEOs know that if they don't have a good, uh, you know, ethical culture, their ability to grow the business, to expand is going to be harmed. Okay. I mean, you're going to be restrained, constrained, that they know that they have if they're going 
to, you know, innovate and grow and, you know, let's say uh, acquire companies, they've got to have a strong culture to do that. And so business leaders get it. So that language, I think they can definitely uh, work with. That's a, a great point. Well, David, thank you. Um, we, you know, I appreciate your time. We, this has been fascinating, and I really uh, congratulations again on the LRN uh, report. I wanted to, um, if people want to reach you, if a listener wants to reach out to you uh, and discuss any of this more, or, or talk about any other issues of importance in the uh, ethics and compliance field, uh, how can they reach you? Uh, Greenberg at lrn.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, David, and uh, we appreciate you taking your time, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. We'd love to have you back some other time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. Waiting for someone to tell you everything. Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring. Maybe a damn ring. Well, it's all right. Even if to say you're wrong, well, it's all right. Sometimes you gotta be strong. Well, it's all right. As long as you got so much to lay. Somewhere down the road away You think of me and wonder where I am these days Maybe somewhere down the road when somebody plays Purple haze